This time, we're taking a look at the ultra campy space adventure, Flash Gordon. And along the way, we ask, why did Sam Jones walk off this movie? Did Star Wars run so Flash Gordon could walk? And what's with all the 007 connections? Podcast, <laughs> this is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Welcome back to another episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and fellow Queen Lover co-host. I am Chris Rupp, and I have to say, Sean, I commend you for being able to reach Freddie Mercury-like register on that <laughs> intro there. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you are so correct about that song and the soundtrack. I, uh, when I watch this film immediately we're bedazzled by freddie mercury's lush voice with flash ah! and i was like oh my god i totally get what chris is saying so thank you i i i am so grateful to have this in my life now yeah and i and especially now i think now that like queen is just one of those uh, eternal rock bands i think people now have an appreciation for just how great freddie mercury was live but i don't know i got the feeling that he was holding something back when he was letting loose on flesh ah, during the soundtrack <laughs> right like he could have put some more oomph in that I could, yeah there's just oh it's so great it once i felt like with that song i just wanted more i wanted more freddie mercury man but they gave us what they gave us <laughs> yeah and unfortunately this isn't a freddie mercury slash queen podcast this is a science fiction <laughs> movie podcast and today we are talking about the ultra campy uh i guess cult classic from 1980 we're talking flash gordon this was sean's pick Woo! continuing along with 80s schlocky sci-fi month and i gotta say like i had no frame of reference for this movie other than the soundtrack because I did never watch this movie as a kid, but listened to the soundtrack all the time because my dad loved it, but hated the movie, which to me was just this <laughs> entertainment paradox I could never wrap my head around. <laughs> that is pretty wild, to be honest. I I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure I have some of those films too, though. <laughs> all right. Uh, definitely i'm thinking of some too like you're just watching it thinking oh man that's garbage but this soundtrack is banging man right it just sounds so good i just hate it's like that, that's how you watch it is you just close your eyes that's all you do you just listen to the music and you're like yes the movie that i wish it could be but this movie flash gordon the soundtrack is wonderful but why don't you tell us chris give us a synopsis of what this movie is about Okay, so when quarterback Flash Gordon, along with his companions Dale Arden and Dr. Hans Zarkov, are abducted to face the terrible Emperor Ming, Flash must become the hero the galaxy needs and save every one of us. Oh, yes. And when you say Ming, I... So... Initially, when I read a little bit about the synopsis, which I appreciate you, great synopsis, I thought that the emperor was going to be Asian. And it is it, the person playing them is not Asian at all. I believe it's Max von Sydow, which, once again, we get another appearance from him on this podcast. This is like the third or fourth time. He's, he's like British, right? I think he's actually um, Swedish. Um, um, but yeah, like you're absolutely right. Like... Max von Sydow, you you don't immediately think of him as playing a character named Ming. It's you would expect that to go to like a, a actor of Asian descent or even Yul Brenner. You could have stretched this to Yul Brenner. I mean, Yul <laughs> Brenner, I believe, was still alive at this point in time. You could have had him do this. He was just off of Westworld. That would have been a cool thing to do. Um, but yeah, but like this. I think, and this is something we're going to get into, uh, touch into a little bit later. I think it's just the attitudes um, that surrounded the times during the time when the original comic uh, was released, along with the film serial. But yeah, this is it's something that we'll we'll talk into in greater detail in a little bit. But but Max von Sydow, right off the bat, I mean, 
Yeah, we love Max von Sydow on the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast. Yes, we do. He's just a wonderful, wonderful classic actor. And it's crazy. He's been in two of our films out of the schlocky 80s month. So rock on, Max von Sydow. We appreciate you. Um, the starring man that plays Flash is uh, Sam J. Jones. Um, I don't know much about him, to be honest. I think he is more famous for this movie because of what came after. Um, his only film credit prior to Flash, Gordon, was uh, it was a, a comedy with Bo Derek um, called Ten. And this is a very, I mean, the, the, the scene that everybody thinks of is Bo Derek running down the beach in a swimsuit with uh, uh, braids in her hair. And like everybody, this is, that's the, that's the shot. That's the film where that shot comes from. And somehow, some way, this unknown actor was able to beat out Kurt Russell and Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Flash Gordon, which, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, just absolutely boggles the mind. I could not read that when I first read that, or believe it when I first read that. I mean, I so I can understand why they rejected probably Schwarzenegger, because at the time, this is like late 70s, he's very fresh. Probably uh, probably can't really speak that great of English, so like just imagine Flash Gordon being like Emperor Ming, <laughs> like I wouldn't even know. Like he he would just be like just going to town on that thick Austrian accent of his. That would be rough to watch. That I think that would have put this movie into the schlocky territory. But Kurt Russell, I think that would have been a perfect pick for Flash, because Kurt Russell is just like the embodiment of like the late 70s or 80s cinema and he he was just like fresh uh sexy just like everything that an action hero could be as um with the uh wasn't he uh snake blick skin or something like that yeah um i think that was sometime it was right around the even bef- probably even before this movie came out like he was in a, a john carpenter film called escape from new york which came out in 1981 great cast in that uh hopefully it's one we get to here on the force fed sci-fi podcast soon because uh, it's it's one of my personal favorites in in the john carpenter filmography um but yeah like kurt russell like kurt russell just has this undeniable screen presence like you you don't mistake him for anybody else he's he's literally a chameleon like he can be anybody in any movie you could ever want him to he's funny he can play nerdy type characters i've seen him do that a couple of times he can play hard-ass cool characters like he is he's literally like an everyman type of actor absolutely and he's charismatic as hell which is um i think like Sam Jones in this film the <laughs> flash was like kind of like the low point of all the characters <laughs> like he, he just it just felt like a guy running around in a costume like in a in a wife beater t-shirt as opposed to you know being this like superhero character um but that could also be to the times um because like now just when we think of superheroes we think of like Marvel and they're just like worlds apart difference from even christopher reeves's superman from back in the day i totally echo what you're saying about sam jones just like kind of being the low guy in the totem pole because there are so many times in this movie where he's overshadowed by the other actors on screen like timothy dalton brian blessed max von Sydow, even uh Haim Topol. like sam jones like is almost like an afterthought for most of this movie because he has no real great screen presence i think he's just relying on the fact that he's bulging with muscles and he's just playing the title character of the movie i i agree i think the women overshadow him in this uh movie way more too like melody anderson and uh ornella muti i think is her name she like both of those actresses were fantastic like i'm like these people have way more charisma than sam jones yeah this movie should not have been called flash gordon like you could have gotten away with calling it you know prince baron or voltan or even dale for god's sakes you could have you could have called this anything else other than flash gordon and it probably would have made money you know at that time if you want to go a little bit into like the beginning you know um this is 
made late 70s, released in 1980. So this was like fresh uh, during the Star Wars boom. Yeah, this was during um, that age where like science fiction movies were not really being made. Like obviously Star Wars kind of regenerated people's interest in science fiction, but most of the time the genre was relegated to like, you know, your B-roll. Like it was films that were made on the cheap, not a lot of plot or thought went into them. And then Star Wars came along and just told people what they wanted to see out of their movies. Like it was basically the cinematic version of Apple in the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. George Lucas and Industrial Light and Magic and everybody involved in that movie showed people, hey, this is how you can make a movie. More importantly, this is how you can make a science fiction film and have it be thoughtful, impactful, and look great on screen for the time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of George, I know he offered to make this movie before Star Wars, and they... uh, they, they told him to kick rocks. So he's like, screw you, I'm going to go make Star Wars then. I mean, maybe it's a good thing he didn't make it because then he would have just tried to update it with new special effects every 15 years. <laughs> Very true. I mean, but also, too, like we get another, along with Max von Sydow, we get another repeat player here on 80 Schlocky Sci-Fi Month. We get the return of producer Dino De Laurentiis, yeah. who... I th- he owned the rights to this movie for so long and same deal with Dune he could not get this made for such a long time god this poor guy it's like he he invested in both franchises that no one wanted although to be honest I think we have figured out what Dino De Laurentiis's formula is for or at least what he thinks is the formula for making a successful <laughs> film like he he takes beloved or wildly influential source material he gets a sizable budget with a director who knows how to stretch said budget um you get a cast that's up and down a mix of newcomers and experienced players uh, alike you have great production design with amazing costumes and makeup uh as well as a uh, kick-ass rock band to tie it all together. I think that is the Laurentis formula for a blockbuster. I think so because he tried that with Dune too. And, uh, you know, well, this one, I think, was met a little bit better. But, yeah, I'll agree with you there. Yeah, this is basically just Dune, just four years beforehand. Pretty much, yeah. And a little bit nicer, though. I, I would say this one's a little bit more uh, polished off. The special effects, the set pieces, uh, it's, it's, it's schlocky, but it isn't as horrible as the ending of Dune. Where that just felt like a mess. No, this doesn't have the same messy quality to it. And I think this is something that kind of comes in with the territory uh, on from the original source material. It's based off of a 1930s comic strip of the same name. There was also film serials around the same time um, that came out. And it's definitely like a, a knockoff of Buck Rogers, uh, the, the famous, I guess, like space adventurer. Mm-hmm. So this movie gets a pretty sizable budget after going through a bunch of different filmmakers and directors. There was one director, Nicholas Rogue, who basically spent a year of pre-production on this movie until he was fired by De Laurentiis. (laughs) And then Mike Hodges was brought in, and along with him was brought on um, the writer by the name of Lorenzo Semple Jr., who is actually credited for developing the original Batman show uh, in the 1960s with Adam West. Very cool. Very cool. So, yeah, it kind of gives you a bit of insight as to what to expect with Flash Gordon. And I think if you don't know these things going into it, that I think that they were trying to go for ultra campy, then I think the campiness comes as a bit of a shock to the casual viewer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I I mean, I know of this uh, movie as being like a super schlocky film. As opposed, I, you know, I didn't think that Flash Gordon was going to be this ultra-grounded, serious, you know, epic. At least from what I've seen in... Because how I heard about this movie was, I think, references from Family Guy and then... um, Ted. Yeah, because Flash Gordon, Sam Jones appears in Ted 1 and Ted 2. And I'm like, what is this crazy thing? And so that's what I do. I'm like, oh, I have to watch this film someday in my life. Yeah, I think now 
yeah, Sam Jones has just become like this caricature because of ultimately like what happened and how him walking away from Flash really derailed his career. Um, yeah. But this is something that this was something I was trying to go in with clean expectations. Like I wasn't expecting, like you were saying, anything grounded. I mean, it was coming out in 1980. Yeah. I also wasn't expecting anything super gritty or dark. Like this is supposed to be a fun space adventure um, based off of, you know, the Seth MacFarlane tributes on Family Guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I didn't know about the, uh, the ending. I mean, because well, we can talk about Sam Jones leaving um, in a second. So, like, this film, it is ultimately campy. Like, it opens up with Queen, you know, the big number, the flash from Queen. And it, if you don't get it then, it's like this film almost opens up as, like, a serial cartoon. Like, it tries to be a, um, a comic book, essentially, with the flash. Ah, like... It, all it was missing was every time he punched someone, we just needed a pow, bang, like at the screen because it really plays out that way. Oh, you know Lorenzo Semple Jr. was fighting for the onomatopoeias that are appearing on the screen. You know he was fighting for those. <laughs> and I didn't think, like, I loved the soundtrack of this film and it didn't bother me one bit. I felt like Queen was the perfect band to be in it and I think, like, it just, it worked you know, it was the kick off the 80s, end of the 70s, this campy, schlocky film, like over the top. If it was this grounded, like serious soundtrack, I don't think it would have worked. Yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll agree with you on like having Queen as like the perfect band in this movie, because in 1980, like they were arguably the biggest band in the world at the time. They had two number one hits. Um, they had an album out at the time called The Game that sold over 4 million copies. And it's hard to quantify it now because we have so many different avenues of entertainment and so many different ways that people, you know, can put their music out into the world. Like, it's hard to put, like, put in the modern terms now just how popular and how widespread Queen was at this time. Yeah, they were huge um, from what I've read. And like seen and like you know, uh, from bio autobiographies and then you know from the movies and everything, they were huge. It was right before their drop off. So I mean, that's like um, now if like they would have picked like The Weekend or I guess T Swift <laughs> to do a soundtrack for a movie, right? I mean, T Swift would have to get a whole bunch of money, or <laughs> I mean, shoot, after watching the Super Bowl halftime show, I'd give a, a lot of money to Dr. Dre to do my film soundtrack right now. Well, that see, now that's an interesting thing because I was just thinking about that. Like, we really don't see nowadays in films artists kind of rallying and um, like a producer or someone saying, "Hey, Eminem." Make a soundtrack. Like, obviously, Eminem did, you know, for 8 Mile. Dr. Dre, I think, did for Compton, that film. But it's really not that common anymore that you'll see bands, um, you know, put to come together and just do a full epic soundtrack for a film. Unless, like, you count Phil Collins, because he's done so many for Disney. Yeah, I think it's something like, you're, ab you're absolutely right. This is something we don't really see anymore. We'll see maybe like individual artists go off to become like composers. Like we saw it um, just last episode with weird science and Danny Elfman breaking away from Oingo Boingo to become a great producer. And I think like now the most recent or contemporary example we have is probably uh Trent Reznor from nine inch nails, who is, I think he's a, he's an Academy award winning um, composer now. Like he's done um, soul, um, the Pixar film from a couple of years ago. And, um, the social network he is like it basically exclusively works with david fincher but he is incredible wow i mean and I, it's 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 yeah but you're absolutely right it's rare to see f like full bands make this jump into composing but i think it's much more common to see individuals make that leap like if they're done with their band and just want to move on yeah or they'll do like a, a single for the film but you won't see them do it it's just maybe it's just different you know different times <laughs> maybe less people listen to soundtracks nowadays i don't know i mean which is a shame because i listen to the jurassic park soundtrack all the time <laughs> classic my man that is a classic 
classic. It will never die. Not until we let it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, yeah. So Queen was the bomb at all. Did they? Did it take you out at all of the film? You know, it did at times, but I think I kind of get what they were going for with it. They wanted to make it, like you were saying, they wanted to feel more like a comic book and wanted to be fun and, you know, placed in the time and have the marketing pull that a band like Queen has. But I think they also wanted to avoid this film looking too much like Star Wars. There had to be some way to distinguish it from Star Wars. And what better way to do that than have a rock and roll soundtrack? Absolutely. I totally agree with you there because if it was this like epic composer that was kind of like John Williams, then it would very much seem like that. And this film just isn't, it's similar to star Wars, but it's just not because it's just the way that they portray it. The director choices, it's not as grounded as an epic, like, uh, well, I guess like a saga, um, as like, you know, star Wars is so, I uh, I get what you're saying. I I totally agree cuz like Star Wars doesn't have like Emperor Ming <laughs> where it's like a white dude playing an Asian man. Oh yeah, there's uh there like, I think we could also title 80 Schlock Sci-Fi Month as movies you couldn't make today yeah. because you definitely could not do a white man playing an Asian uh, uh an emperor named Ming. <laughs> In, in today's modern filmmaking. It's just stupid. Because it's like, well, we'll see. We see Matt Damon playing in The Great Wall. Didn't they try to dress that movie up as like Matt Damon was like a Spaniard who um, who made his way to China or something? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's I, Which is even more problematic than a white man playing. It's, it's, just say it out. It's a white man playing a Spaniard who winds up in ancient China. Like, there's problems with that. It's just so stupid. You, you know what was a good film? And I'll go on a little tangent that where they did it perfectly. It's called The Last Samurai. They totally facilitated where Tom Cruise is able to like work with the Asian culture, but he's not like playing what should have been an Asian character. Yeah, and that's like a that fits into the whole stranger in a strange land um, type of genre, which is amazing if you do it right. Like another one of those that comes up is Witness um, with Harrison Ford. Um, yeah. Like there's, but there's better ways of making Stranger in a Strange Land movies that don't involve, uh, you know, racist caricatures <laughs> or white people playing Asian characters. Yes, like like Max von Sydow and as Emperor Ming. I just um, I just didn't understand it. I was like, you know, seeing him do that because the makeup, you know, they tried to make his eyes whatever with a bunch of makeup, and I'm like, why didn't they just call him something different? Or why, you know, I just, you don't have to do the makeup. You know, he could have just been a white dude. But, um, or they could have just had an Asian person play Emperor Ming. Shocker. Because I think his uh, daughter, or was it his concubine, um, she's supposed to be Asian too. And they do the same thing with the makeup. And she's Italian. Oh, yeah. She is white as the virgin snow. Um <laughs> But like, but the comic was created in the 1930s, and there was this whole like period of time. And, and I mean, you can argue this is something that we really haven't kind of disconnected from as a society. But this idea of yellow peril that you know people are coming from Eastern Asia to basically rain tyranny on innocent white people. Um, I mean, obviously the the name Ming is referencing the Ming Dynasty from China, yeah. and then also like I mean, he comes from the planet Mongo, which is um, a derivative of Mongol, and oh. th like this is this is something that was just very common in the 20th century, and then also you have World War II and anti-Japanese propaganda that was coming out left and right. Um, and then, like, you can even make connections to now, like, the rise of anti-Asian hate that's just been popping up uh, thanks to the the pandemic, which hopefully we're in the death throes of as as we're recording. Okay, so this is very much a product of its time. The source material was very much a product of its time back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. But again, this is also something that you could not do today you just couldn't like <laughs> like even marvel addressed um 
their problematic villains with um, Shang-Chi, because like, Fu Manchu was supposed to be the villain of Shang-Chi, but they reworked the character and and updated him so it doesn't rely on racist stereotypes to create a, a compelling or diabolical villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could... Well, that's, like, the thing. If they did this film nowadays, I mean... They could have. They could cast like Emperor Ming as being like an Asian person. That's fine. They just don't have to go into like the crazy stereotypes, you know. I mean, anyone could be Flash Gordon. I would like to see a black Flash Gordon. That would be crazy, <laughs> you know. Like, because at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, how it's like the characters, like the story that they tell, you know, their mission, whatever it is. That's what's supposed to matter more than, like, who it is or what, like, race and nationality they are. But it's just annoying when it's a character, like, when they take characters that are supposed to, that have been written to be a certain person. And instead of just, like, changing it, like you said, with the uh, Shang-Chi and just, like, making it more modern, they, like, take, like, filmmakers will, like, keep things, like emperor ming and then cast like someone that's totally different it's like no either follow suit or change it like you don't because then it just gets weird yeah i think there's a way of creating a compelling you know um, galactic emperor supervillain without having to you know evoke images of east asia tyranny yeah yeah right or like racist crap (laughs) you know weird torture devices and all that (laughs) just it's just weird (laughs) i mean like yeah you could still cast max von saito to be your villain you just please don't call him emperor yeah (laughs) you know or yeah have like an explanation of it or something you know make it make it more uh make it more clear so that we don't get confused or make assumptions ourselves how did you um so in this film uh, you know, it, it's the reveal of Emperor Ming. His throne room is like super elaborate and it's very diverse. Like there's tons of alien creatures and people in there. Um, I was hearkening myself and I saw on the notes, excuse me. It was like, I was getting really like big wizard of Oz feel. How about you? Oh yeah. Like that opening throne room there, like heavy, Wizard of Oz, uh, Oz vibes along with uh, the Star Wars cantina scene there. You just have all of these elaborate costumes, different looking aliens. You have weird music that's playing in the background. So there's heavy, heavy, heavy Star Wars Wizard of Oz, uh, Oz vibes here. Right. And they had I, I feel like maybe they borrowed <laughs> because it's pretty elaborate. I mean, the the big thing that is different from the wizard from uh, Star Wars and uh, Flash Gordon is Star Wars didn't have a weird scene where Luke just grabs like a football looking device and starts uh, shoulder tackling a bunch of stormtroopers. Oh my god, that scene totally goes off the rails <laughs> as soon as he starts running roughshod over all of the henchmen with that football thing. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I I literally thought it was a joke. I rewound it because I'm like, did I miss something? Did like Emperor Ming say that we're going to play a football game or something? Because it's totally like you have to see it. And, I, and I'll and uh, i post it on the website. It's just so jarring. <laughs> it's like confusing. It's befuddling because the guy, the doctor that takes him, you know, up to the planet, he's like, hey, you go, Flash, attack. And then Flash just starts like throwing like Brett Favre passes at these guys heads yeah i I think any quarterback coach would look at flash's stance during that scene and think like well you're doing that wrong (laughs) right (laughs) maybe because the jets uh bag is in the film they they just had to you know they're like all right we have to have this scene you know a football scene in it we have to it's crazy to me that this is the only scene in the movie where we get any sort of semblance that Flash is a football player on Earth because there's, other than that Jets bag that you mentioned at the very beginning of the film in this scene, there's nothing else. And so much of the character description is like, oh, he's a meathead jock football player. Mm -hmm. Like, it just doesn't do anything for the character. Like, there's even, there isn't even any context as to why 
Flash uh, shows up at that airport and, and gets on the plane with Dale Arden at the very beginning of the film. I <laughs> I chalk it up to the schlocky 80s movie magic, Chris. I'm telling you, because it did... I mean, Sam Jones, you know, he's supposed to be a meathead, but he doesn't, like, come off too much as a meathead outside of the scene. He's, like, pretty nimble, I feel like. Yeah, probably. It's just... For me, there's just no frame of reference. Like, why make this a part of the character's backstory <laughs> if it's not going to come up in other than him comically running over a bunch of henchmen in a throne room? Right. And I thought that it would, like, have a payoff at the end when they're balancing on the uh, on that, like, floating spiky device thing. I was like, all right, maybe this is going to pay off later or something. You know, he's going to have to do something, like when he's getting out of the swamp or whatever with like a football, he's going to have to throw something at something, you know, but no, this is like just such a random scene that pops up and they never mention He never does anything football like again. Nope. Never, never, ever, ever, ever comes up <laughs> at any point again for the rest of the movie. Eighties man. Gotta love it. Well, and it's amazing to me that like the jets of all the NFL teams at the time would be picked to, be Flash Gordon's team because at the time that this movie came out, the Jets were awful. <laughs> like they were four and twelve in nineteen eighty. They finished last in the in their division in the AFC East at the time. And if you're not a football person, like don't worry, we're not we're not talking sports this episode. This is just to give you somewhat of an idea, like just how bad the Jets are. Like, and it's something like even now as sports fans, like it's really easy to dunk on the Jets because they're so awful. But, like, they've been awful for, like, 40 years. They have been. Maybe that was, like, their ploy with the film. They're like, oh, we're so bad because Flash Gordon wasn't there during the season. He was going to be our quarterback, but because he went off Earth, that's why <laughs> we suck. Because we don't have Flash. I mean, if you want to make him a you wouldn't want to make him a relevant quarterback for the time. Like, make him the quarterback for the, the Cowboys or the Steelers because this is still in the middle of, of their dynasties. Like, at least have it be a cool NFL franchise. Don't have it be the Jets. Right? And then they could do, like, Flash comes back at the end of the movie just in time for the game. And then and they have a little scene where he, like, throws the ball and scores the touchdown at the Super Bowl. And, you know, they could have the back and forth thing and on the planet and then back at earth we're like oh where's flash we we got the quarterback we we got a super bowl playing you know we gotta we gotta win without him how what are we gonna do you know they could have added that to it uh yeah i just uh if there are any jets fans that are listening to this podcast we're not dunking on you personally we're dunking on your team and we i feel bad for you personally because you had to deal with tom brady in your division for 20 <laughs> years and then tom brady leaves and then you have to deal with josh allen dunking on you for probably the next 15 <laughs> to 20 years so you have my you have all of my sympathies <laughs> thank you chris <laughs> I mean, I'm a long. We're long-suffering Bears fans. I had to deal with Brett Favre and the Aaron Rodgers jerk for most of my life. So trust me, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's uh, it's hell living in near Chicago. But this is not <laughs> a sports episode. What did you? You know what was really interesting in this movie? Because um, we usually talk about it very, uh, especially. Uh, recent films with the depiction of women during 80s movies and I really enjoyed uh, Flash Gordon's depiction of the female characters I really thought um, Dale was interesting as a character she she kicked ass I think there is like one scene where she like breaks out of like she of her room and she dismantles and beats up a bunch of guards I thought the uh princess aurora was pretty cool too like it was weird the dialogue in this film was awful where princess aurora saw flash and she's like i like you i really like you <laughs> but i thought the female characters in this like this movie they were not regulated to being uh damsels in distress no they definitely play up a bit of princess aura's like um they imply that she's a bit of a slut and likes to sleep around and uh you know, uses her body to get what she wants. Um, 
And then Dale, like, yeah, Dale definitely has more badass moments than Aura does because she's able to figure out like the, the um the the mental communication with Flash. She tricks um several people into like getting into the room with Ming. Um, is able to dispatch some of the guards and henchmen. So yeah, like Dale is definitely kind of the unsung hero of the movie. Like you could have called this movie Dale Arden, and it would have been okay with me. <laughs> me too, actually. I feel like she was more of an efficient. Uh, hero in this movie than Flash was. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, but it's just there, and then like Dale and Flash's relationship definitely escalates very quickly. Yeah. Like they're they hang out for two days, and at the end of those two days, Dale's like, "I want to have babies." <laughs> I chalk that up to garbage writing. Garbage, man, just absolute garbage. Because that, yeah, the writing, I would say, for the females is just terrible. Like, Princess Aurora just, like, wants to bang Flash the whole time. And, like, the dialogue is just like, oh, my God. And uh, Dale seems like the most level-headed person until that stuff. Then, like, she just, like, completely goes bonkers. Where it's like, wait, what happened to this, like, super, you know, motivated, hey, I want to take things slow here's the mission let's get back to earth type of deal now it's just like you saved the world let's get married yeah just uh all kinds of escalation that's just like way too fast for me no payoff no build nor payoff very very weird um but hey it is what it is (laughs) what'd you think of the villains um everybody like starts off as villains at some point like ming is obviously the big baddie of the villain but voltan is also like um i guess a minor villain in some respects until he allies with flash prince baron we definitely see some ruthlessness from him um to me it's just hard to kind of parse out exactly what ming wants to do like we have that weird prologue of him like i like to play with my things before i destroy them like does he want to just destroy the earth or does he want to just continue on in his galactic conquest like his motives like aren't really well known until near the end of the film when he he's you know trying to convince flash to partner up or ally with him and he says like oh if there's intelligent life on a planet i just destroy it because i don't want revolution (laughs) <laughs> he's so evil <laughs> i mean dude is willing to sell his daughter down the river um he is he's definitely like he definitely leads up to the title of being the merciless he does that man he he's just like messing with earth at the beginning just to mess with it i'm bold let's cause hurricanes i mean that's that man he, that is what you get when you get a psychopath gets toys and is able to just like run, as you said, Raj, roughshod all over the galaxy. That is that is Ming in a nutshell. He, he his moral compass is not intact at all. He just he's a bored man and he wants to. He gets pleasure off of uh, making people hurt and he he gets off to people's pain. I think. Well, not only that, and he surrounds himself with people who enjoy dishing out that pain i mean he's got clitus the head of his secret police who you know pines after his daughter and then presu- yeah. you know when he's offered ming's daughter his eyes just all light up like oh i'm gonna have me like a some you know some raping time on our wedding day <laughs> oh my god clitus just uh, gives like the weirdest look as soon as ming says you can have my daughter like it, it is is it clitus the dude wearing the mask yeah, which again, that mask is some piece of costumery right there. Dude, so that's why I wanted to say Clytus. So I really appreciated, because uh, the actor that played him is uh, Peter Wingard, I believe. And I was really, I don't know about you, but I was really moved by his acting. I thought he did a hell of a job despite like only having to use like his mouth, you know, because in a little, I don't really remember seeing his eyes, but he 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 was really good. I was really shocked at the acting of this man. Like, he was a messed up dude. Yeah, definitely does a good job of playing the power behind the throne role. It's, it's you know, something that kind of gets overlooked and it's something that's uh, we've come to recognize a bit more with, uh, with the Game of Thrones series. But, yeah, Peter Wingard was definitely kind of the unsung acting hero of Flash Gordon here. 
Yes, out of all, because I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the acting in this movie was at all that great. <laughs> because it really was, it was campy as hell. But if there was one that one actor that was actually, they just embraced their role, but actually took it to a serious where I was like, oh, wow. You know, there was some good choices outside of, you know, I feel like Side Out just like went off the rails because he's like, I'm just going to be as big as I can be. I feel like Peter Wingard, he, he really dialed it in. And he just did those, you know, those perfect lines. And he he, he died a, a very <laughs> awful death that was hilarious. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that um, Timothy Dalton, Brian Bless, and Peter Wingard all sat down and had a meeting and said, listen, we can either play this really campy or we can play this as serious as a car accident. What do we want to do? <laughs> serious as a car accident. Yeah, and I and I have to commend that level of commitment from from those guys. I mean, it, it reminded me a lot of Michael Caine's performance in a Muppet Christmas Carol. Like he's pl- playing it just as serious as a car accident. It's it's brilliant, <laughs> and it, and it's and it's the reason why we remember films like this so well. Like even though it is ultra campy, like nobody's gonna say that Flash Gordon isn't campy. But man, you can't deny the presence of Dalton, Blessed, and Wingard on screen together. Yes, and I would say Dalton, because was Dalton um, 007 at this point? No, so this was, um, about, he was about six years away from getting cast as 007, and you could tell that even though this was probably early in, in Dalton's career, that he was bound for big things, and the producers actually wanted him as Bond much earlier when he was much younger because I think he accepted it in his late 30s and but he passed because he was too young and then mm. and then he played 007 his films were pretty dark and he was great definitely ahead of his time but I mean he's not the only 007 connection we get in this movie all right give me <laughs> some more <laughs> like um uh Topol the actor who plays uh, Dr. Zarkov he's um a Bond ally in uh For Your Eyes Only which I think came out in um 83 a couple of years after this um so uh I am Topol there another Bond connection and even uh, Max von Sydow got in on the 007 uh craze cuz he played Blofeld in the 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 side Bond franchise with Sean Connery and never say never again. <laughs> so we get just a lot of uh, Bond in this film, huh? A lot of Bond, yeah. And I think uh, our past guest in front of the show, Colin, would uh would be interested to come back and uh, give us the rundown on all of that. Absolutely, absolutely. We got to get you back on, Colin. It has been too long. If you're listening to this, and I will say, um. I will agree with you about uh, Brian Blessed. Because was he the dude that uh, during that crazy football scene was randomly hitting guys with his hammer? Oh, yeah. He was hamming it up and loving every second of it. God, that dude was so great. Because it was just, it was perfect comedy gold, I would say. You know, because someone would stand up that he had just hit in the head and. You know, he looks at the guy. He's like, ah, should I let him run? No, bing, hits him again, falls down. He does it like three times. Perfect comedy gold, man. I'm telling you, this film, there's a little bit of everything for everyone if if y'all give it a chance. <laughs> it just makes me think that, like, how different this movie would have been. Like, maybe not Schwarzenegger, but definitely with Kurt Russell as Flash Gordon. This would have been, this would have gone out of the cult classic we know it, and it would have been an amazing film because everybody would have played it as serious as a heart attack with people who actually know how to act. I am totally echoing everything you say. I feel like if Kurt Russell was in, was in, yeah, it would be a very sexy superhero. Just boom. This film would have been much, much different. And like, and I'm sure this has been talked about for years since this film has come out. Like, like how different do you think, Flash Gordon would have been different if this had managed to come out before Star Wars. If this came out before Star Wars, like if George directed it, or yeah, if-, if some if somehow De Laurentiis gave Lucas the rights, and instead of Star Wars coming out in 1990, uh, 1977, George Lucas releases Flash Gordon, 
Yeah, it's. It, we would probably be talking about a different uh, movie franchise, to be honest with you. But who knows? I mean, at the same token, because what made Star Wars so great was the editing and all the troubles that they had at the time, um, which is what made the films wonderful, as opposed if we actually got George's actual direction. But I think, you know, George's, at the same token, I think George's um, innovation and creative mind he probably would have turned this film into a little bit less of a campy thing and it would have been more grounded and had great special effects as opposed to you know a bunch of men on uh wires flying away and you know with flash on his little motor ship thing you know behind a like a blue screen i think it wouldn't have been as uh campy or as you know tongue-in-cheek yeah, I, I agree. I think it, we would have seen the, we still would have seen the the great advancements in special effects. I mean, maybe slightly better acting. I don't know. That's difficult Who to knows? say. <laughs> Especially um, when George is writing. <laughs> I mean, the dialogue would have been crap, but the performances would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would who would have? Maybe Sam Jones wouldn't have walked off the movie set. Which I didn't. Did you find out stuff about that? Like, because he said uh, something like most of his lines were dubbed. Uh, it, it it's kind of left to history as to what this dispute was actually about. Um, but it, this uh, but yeah, like I read the same thing you did. Like the most of his lines were dubbed. Um, because it, it said something like he left three quarters of the way through the project, and most of his lines had to be dubbed. Um, but. Sam Jones released a documentary called Life, Af- uh, Life After Flash, um, which kind of goes through the um, the making of the film and the following it's gained. Um, but it, it doesn't go into details as to what um, his falling out with De Laurentiis was about, but just more of like how it impacted his career. Because after Flash comes out, like he does nothing he does a lot of direct-to-video movies he does some television here and there and then it's not until 2012 2015 where he appears as himself in the ted movies from seth mcfarland yes yes that's where i saw him the first time yeah his hair is just dyed that platinum blonde and the flash (laughs) soundtrack kicks on and and ted is just like you gotta come here sam jones is here at this party (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I'm doing an awful Boston accent, but like if you've seen Ted, you know what I'm talking about here. Apparently, there's all sorts of cocaine, and Mark Wahlberg is told to abandon <laughs> his girlfriend and come to a party just so he can meet an '80s one-off you know, <laughs> movie star. Classic. Oh God, I love Seth MacFarlane and Marky Mark. Yeah, that's. I think that was his minor uh, cultural res- resurgence in a way. Yeah, I think I think people were rooting for Sam Jones to have a comeback, but it's just never materialized. I mean, he's not he's not a great actor. I don't think he puts a lot no. of effort into it. I mean, I mean, it's a shame that his career got derailed, but I think that was a lot of pride that played into it. And it's, I mean, who knows what could have been? I mean, he was definitely up and coming, and then you have a big falling out with a big time producer, and and look what happens. You do direct to video movies for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think, you know, that goes to show how the movie industry was a little bit different back in the day because, like, your career could have been killed easily, you know, if someone didn't like you. And you could be blacklisted, essentially, whereas I think nowadays there's just, you know, so many studios out there. You can go overseas to make films. You can stay here. You can make your own movies. Like, there's just so many ways to, like, get back into the uh, industry. But it is difficult when you're not that great of an actor <laughs> and you walk off of a big-time producer set. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, well, that's probably a good example as to who's not doing their job behind the scenes. But, Sean, <laughs> do you have an example of somebody who's not doing their job in front of the screen in this movie? In front of the screen in this movie? Uh I would say, you know, in front of the screen, outside of like what we talked about, yeah, I would say it's probably Sam Jones for walking off the set for a dispute that's not, that's not professional. And 
he saw the ramifications, so he did not do his job. Um, and the crazy doctor, I would say, too. How about you? Um, you know, I'm going to have to pick uh, Prince Baron. Like, I love Timothy Dalton, but Baron spends most of his time fighting with Flash because of Aura. Like, and, and by all accounts, like he he is not a fan of Aura at the uh, when we first see the uh, the two of them together. Like he he even calls her a bitch at one point, which is <laughs> which was astounding to me. And he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to drown him in the swamp," which is crazy diabolical and like the whole second act or whatever could have been avoided if he had just you know <laughs> got his head out of his butt and allied with flash and they could have killed ming sooner but no he had to be all jealous of aura even though he hates her it's just it's this weird emotional venn diagram that was hard to parse out for me because didn't he make uh flash like stick his arm in the uh was that the tree trunk to get stabbed by the scorpion yeah, it was like the 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 tree of life or 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 something to that effect. <laughs> that was a pretty cool scene though. The, the tension, I felt it. Yeah, it was Oh, uh, it was crazy. Yeah, and then he's and then he fakes being stung is like, "Oh, now we're going to fight." <laughs> Very diabolical. Yeah, the, the the people in this movie, I would say like most of like the guys in this film outside of flash were all like really scheming diabolical people. Like even the doctor, like at the beginning, you know, flash and, uh, Dale, like they just go in to his like greenhouse and they're like, Hey, can we, can we, can we use your phone? He's like, sure. And then puts them into his like rocket ship and <laughs> points a gun at him. Like, like what the hell, man? Like what? That's crazy. Diabolical. Yeah, two perfect strangers show up at your at your observatory, and your first reaction is to pull a gun on them and force them to go on an intergalactic journey. <laughs> That's messed up, man. That's really messed up. <sighs> and then, like, I don't know, it's just Ming is just murdering people left and right. Just not 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 that great of people in this film. And so, I guess <laughs> you know, I could say there's like a million red shirts in this film because of that uh, so many but like i think uh, honestly like clitus uh, and kala are really the only two characters who we see like die on screen in like any type of brutal way and like they're the only ones who did like like, like i said their deaths are pretty gruesome like clitus's eyes bulge out of his head and and kala like basically melts like the wicked witch from the wizard of oz so like <laughs> hard to hard to pick red shirts between clitus and kala there did they have um at the beginning though, like when Flash and uh, Dale were walking in, and uh, Ming destroyed, zapped someone with that robot thing? Um, that that little green guy that was wearing that awful green costume, sneaking around in the palace. Uh, I don't remember that. Oh, I do remember the, yeah, the two yeah. pilots at the. I remember the two pilots at the very beginning of the movie who are zapped down in into space and never seen again, though. Yeah, we could presume they died. Absolutely, it was like that. But I think there was like this little green monster thing that like got zapped to show like the power of uh, Ming. So I mean, those like yeah, there's really not much death in this film though. Outside of that, did you have a lens flare? Oh man, like it's a campy ass film, so lens flares abound. Um, but for me, the but for me, the one that stands out the most is uh, during Zarkov's brainwashing when they're going to absorb him into the secret police. He's somehow <laughs> able to bypass it and somehow retain all of his memories and knowledge. It's like, I was able to focus and keep all of my memories. They cannot touch this. <laughs> I just so thought of the Beatles. <laughs> it's so, so stupid. It was so dumb. That scene alone, bro, is amazing. Where they go back to his childhood. He's like, Mama! <laughs> I love the 80s, man. 70s, 80s. You can't beat it. <laughs> uh, what about you? Do you have a lens flare? Oh, my God. Yes, my lens flare was at the end when all those winged people, uh, after, like, the big battle, and everyone just, like, abandons the castle, except for, like, Ming and Flash. All the uh, guys, and I think that's including um, Prince Voltan, they're just, like, stepping over 
the like door and then you just see them like lift off and fly into the background with like their little wings and um you could obviously see that they're like on tight ropes or um what is it what is it there's like strings like carrying them away into the distance oh. and, and i was just laughing my butt off when i saw that it was just so <laughs> so bad so funny though that and like flash like flying back to the castle like where it's totally like a blue screen green screen behind them and they're just like rocking the ship and like she dale's hanging on to his like chest i'm like oh my god this is great this is wonderful <laughs> oh boy well I think those were things that definitely bothered us, but do you want to hear what bothered the internet? Sure. Break it down. (laughs) All right. So the latest edition of This Week in Toxic Fandom, Flash somehow manages to set a countdown of three minutes, 21 seconds to Earth's destruction, according to Zarkov's calculations. He does so without a reference point of time. It's just ridiculous to me. Like, it's the 80s. You need a countdown of some version to heighten attention. We've seen it in every James Bond film up to this point, and there were Cold War films abound during this period of time. So, yes, countdowns are essential in this film, people. Come on. It's so dumb. Ah, I love it. You'll never, uh, you'll never see a movie without some internet troll. Uh, the internet never disappoints. It really doesn't. No, it doesn't. You can. It's so so much entertainment in the world. God, but then that is to say that this film has had a legacy on the internet, as you've said, um, as we've said. There's a cult following to it. Like, I believe this film has been referenced a lot. Like as we said with like Ted. I think um, there are a lot of visual refer- influences in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which is a really good movie in my opi- opinion. Excuse me. But it's got a pretty big, um, like it was a big staple in history now. Like now in hindsight, people love it. Yeah, I don't know if it has like a big cult following like we've talked about with other films. But yeah, like, there's definitely the elements here for it. You have the elaborate costumes. You have the over-the-top performances. The, the the schlockiness the campiness the 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 1980s rock and roll soundtrack so yeah it definitely has all of the makings of a cult classic i mean and it's definitely one like when people see brian blessed on the street like they talk to him about flash gordon more often than not even though he's been in dozens of other pictures he's just he's so well known for this i mean in this yeah like and uh, honestly like i have no frame of reference for the cult following um but yeah, like I, uh, that was what I found. Like Seth MacFarlane's a huge fan of this movie. Um, Edgar Wright, the director of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, has cited this as a major influence in his filmmaking and the techniques he uses. So yeah, like it, the Flash Gordon, even though not well received in its time, has definitely I think grown to become appreciated for what the filmmakers were trying to set out to do at the time. I totally back you on that, and it did. You know, and it didn't do too bad. Um, I know, like now, the budget was like twenty to twenty-seven million, and it grossed about forty-six point five million. So that's not bad. Made its money, uh, nearly doubled it, and like on those tomatoes that are rotten, it's got an eighty-three percent. So take that for what you will. And um, I saw that it was ranked. On Rotten Tomatoes' journey through the sci-fi list as number 88 out of 100. So, take that for what you will. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) take that for what you will. Um, Yeah, I think the modern reviews have been a bit kinder than the the contemporary ones. Um, We were also nominated for a few Saturn Awards, Best Costumes, Best Sci-Fi Film, Best Supporting Actor, although it didn't mention... Uh, which one and then also in a bit of a infamous history sam jones was also nominated for the very first worst <laughs> actor razzie award so well deserving <laughs> of that honor i think that is awesome the very first and it got some baftas right which is kind of cool um because 
or nominations because I know BAFTA is like the British version of the Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, a couple of technical nominations, which I think it's it's well deserving of those: best costume design, best original film music, and best art design. So definitely worthy uh, of those nominations there. Um, but the eighties were just such a good time for film, and I believe Star Wars: Empire Strikes Back was pretty darn good. <laughs> so there was no chance. No. No chance. And, you know, as, you know, as we mentioned, Sam Jones infamously walked off the set. And, of course, this scrapped any plans that the producers had for the trilogy of films. So no sequels uh, have been made, although there have been talks of a reboot since mm-hmm. 2015. Nothing's really taken off. Uh, the last I saw of it was that um, uh, Taika Waititi is looking into directing a uh, making a live action remake of this movie but uh that all remains to be seen because taika waititi is one of the most in-demand filmmakers right now and it's hard to pin him down for anything god yeah that sucks (laughs) yeah so they we're probably not going to see a flash gordon remake and honestly that i'm okay with that because i don't think i think nowadays i don't know like how can you know, it was like such a soapbox, serial, schlocky movie. Like, I don't know what a remake would be. Like, a, a serious Flash Gordon? Like, to me, I kind of, like, take a step back at that. Like, I I, I don't know if I would want to see a serious <laughs> Flash Gordon. I, and so then if it was going to remain this campy, silly comedy, then they would probably have to go, you know, something like Shazam or, like, a lower-budget uh, style mm. film. You know, you need the campiness. You need the fun that is Flash Gordon. You can't you can't make this ultra serious because that's not what the source material is. It's never what it's been about. Like, you have to keep this fun. You have to keep it lighthearted. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't want to see a remake of it, though, I mean, it got a 4K Blu-ray restoration in 2020. So there is that for you. There we go. <laughs> well, I think that's good, man. Without, uh, you know. Without further ado, I think we can rate this puppy. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I can. Uh, so using our unique scale on the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own and would host a viewing party. Uh, I'm going to I'll lead us off with uh, with our with my thoughts on Flash Gordon. And um, I think I've been pretty clear as to what I think of this film. <laughs> overall i i don't know if people were 100 percent ready for this in 1980 but i think this is exactly the type of film we had in mind when we um brainstormed 80 schlocky sci-fi month and it's certainly not the best movie in this genre but and and i think it's it's some it's largely brought down by sam jones's performance especially when you consider the level of commitment from other actors like Max von Sydow, um, Daniela Muti, um, Timothy Dalton, and Brian Bless, Peter Wingard. Um, but I think the visual effects for the time are incredible, and I love the costume design. The production design is amazing, but however, uh, it, it, the pacing is just way off. It makes its 110-minute runtime seem a bit longer than it is. Um, but I do think this is probably the best film that we've watched of this series so far. And I'm going to call this a wood watch. Woo! <laughs> Look at that. Hey. Uh, what about you, Sean? What, uh, what do you give to Flash Gordon? All right. So for Flash Gordon, um, much like you said, you know, there are some things that weren't so great about it, like the runtime. It is... Though it's not that long of a film, it's just the pacing, I think, is very tiresome, and it seems longer than it is at some points. But if outside of that, I really enjoyed it. You know, there were, obviously, nowadays, it is kind of, like, off-putting and racist to see white people portraying minorities in roles. So I think that is a little off putting. And if you can drive on past that and just enjoy the film for what it is as a product of its time, the silliness over the top, crazy schlocky fight scenes and acting and just dialogue that is quotable for days. I think it is uh it's a pretty memorable film and it is definitely on my, uh, I would put this as a would own 
it's like right between a wood own and wood host a viewing party. It's not a host a viewing party because it's really not like there, but it's it, it's it's great. It's great. It's like silly and over the top, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I and much like uh, what you said, Chris, um, it, it's probably our best film that we've reviewed in the series so far. So take that for what you will. Um, kudos to the actors in this film that tried and kudos to the ones that were over the top. So that's what I give it. <laughs> well, I think I am definitely going to get you that uh, Blu-ray 4K restoration for a birthday or some uh, special event for you now that I know that you, uh, you're giving such high marks to Flash Gordon. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's everything that I love. <laughs> it's almost like on Soylent Green level, you know? Almost. <laughs> Almost. We're All... just a decade off, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, but we will review that someday. But uh, so what is next on our list, Mr. Rupp? Uh, we're going to close out 80s schlocky sci-fi month with another one of my picks. And I've decided uh, I'm going to steer into the skid. We've been talking mostly bad movies on this pod, on, on this series. And I thought, what better way? to close out the month with one of the worst, probably one of the worst science fiction films ever made. <laughs> the very first Marvel film. We are talking Howard the Duck, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? This is the first Marvel film ever? This is the very first Marvel film. I kid you not. Oh my God. I cannot wait. <laughs> I can't wait, man. Oh, uh, that's going to be good stuff. Um, Sean, my friend, always a pleasure to record with you and discuss these films. Right back at you, Chris. It is always a pleasure. You are the man. Uh, likewise, Culp Fiction. And <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take it away. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And so for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. 